Thank you, Lucy, for drawing attention to my feet. It's not the most important thing, and no, I don't wear shoes. Uh, so I want to talk to you for about 25 minutes about Christmas. Uh, I've called it the Christmas Connection. I hope kind of at the end of this that maybe you'll make a different connection when you think about Christmas. Uh, so when I say Christmas to you, what is it that you initially think of? Christmas jumpers, Christmas trees... Yummy food, presents, presents, horrendous family gatherings, or amazing family gatherings, depending on your family, I guess. Um, Well, uh, one of the things that I think of when I think of Christmas is a baby. The baby Jesus, and uh, kind of on the subject of babies, I, oh, no, not yet, go back. Um, I want to tell you a story of him. Uh, He's my oldest son, Eli. Uh, I'm married to Alex. We've got two boys. Eli's eight and Josiah is six. And uh, there are, you're probably like me, uh, I can't remember what I had for breakfast yesterday. If I asked you what you were doing two weeks ago at 11.21 in the morning, you probably don't know. But there are some things in our lives that... uh, When emotion is involved, the memory is burned into us with incredible clarity. And that is what having a child is like. And for me, on the 2nd of March, 2011, when Eli came into the world, my day started at about half four in the morning. For Alex, it had been going on a lot longer than that, it turned out. And uh, she woke me up and she said, Toby, you know, my water's broken, it's time. He's coming. He's coming into the world. And... So I dutifully kind of help her. We get into the car. I grab the pre-packed bag that you always have good to go because it can happen any time. You've always got to be prepared. And don't forget the car seat. It's the one thing you've never used yet and it's essential that you take it to the hospital. And off we set to the hospital. Uh, now, as we're driving, we we're only about 10 minutes away from the Royal Surrey. As we're driving past B&Q, Ladymead area, it dawns on me that things are perhaps more urgent than I first realised. And uh, my infallible powers of observation had missed that Alex has actually been in labour for most of the previous evening, whilst I'll be on, on some DIY project uh, not noticing. And, uh, and what draws it to my attention in this moment as we drive past B&Q is that Alex is no longer sitting in the passenger seat with her seatbelt fastened, but she's now kneeling on the floor of the footwell and clearly working very hard and screaming at me, he's coming now, drive faster. Um, And I can't impress on you the urgency that this situation generates. Uh, And of course, within obedience to all the rules of the road, I do my best to expedite our journey to the uh, hospital, uh, frustrated slightly by red lights as we come up to the A3. That did not go down well with Alex. Why are you stopping our red light? Um, So anyway, we arrive at the hospital. And one of the things I do need to tell you is that at the time, Alex, my wife, is a midwife. Well, she's not any longer. She's trained as a midwife. So uh, one of the things that Alex always commented to me about was that often in labour, and you pay attention to this, Lucy, uh, that women often arrive at the hospital in labour a little bit earlier than they need to, and they're told, go home and come back in a few hours' time. 
So for a midwife who is pregnant to turn up at the ward she works in with all of her midwife colleagues and doctors that she knows, to turn up early is just, no, you don't do that. So Alex is out to impress everybody with how little time she needs in a bed in the hospital. Uh, and uh, so we get to the hospital and I park, if you've ever been to the Royal Surrey, one of those 20-minute bays right out the front of the hospital. I park there. I don't think I even lock the car because this is quite how urgent things are now getting. I get Alex in a wheelchair and whisk her up to uh, the maternity suite. She's in a bed. There's two midwives there. <sighs> Relax. My job is done. <laughs> I've got her safely there. <laughs> Nothing left for me to do, really. Hold her hand, accept the pain and the insults. Uh, but uh, So I announced to the midwives, right, I'm off. I need to go and park the car. I need to pay for parking. And they declare to me, no, 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 don't go anywhere because this is going to be over by the time you get back. So I stay in the room, and true to their word, it didn't take very long. And through a, a twist of circumstances and the command of my labouring wife, who demanded that I be the one to catch him, uh, I am now the one delivering my son with the aid of these midwives. You don't say no to a pregnant woman in labour, let me tell you. Uh, so I had the joy of bringing this little man into the world. Uh, if you want to pop the slide up for us again. It is. Oh! I never noticed that it... Ah, there we go. Um, so this is Eli. I don't know what you think about babies. It's kind of Marmite. Some people are like, oh, they're so cute. And others are like, they're really ugly. Um, <laughs> I don't know how... I, yeah, I think they're quite ugly when they come out. Their faces all squished. Uh, it gets better. Um, but... Um, <laughs> He, um, it was later uh, that day, as we're leaving the hospital, and I'm, I'm pushing Alex, who's in a wheelchair at the time, and uh, carrying my newborn son, and it just kind of dawns on me. That's it? They let me leave with it? There's no like, course to get through, no test to pass? It, I felt like I was being naughty, like I'd stolen something. Because um, I didn't know how to operate these things. I don't know what the buttons do, and I'm not talking about the car seat. Uh, it doesn't come with instructions. No one comes home to make sure that you get through the first day. They just let you take it home. And it dawns on me, what if I get it wrong? What if I mess up? What if I forget to hold his head? I mean, what happens if a baby's head flops to the side? I don't know. What if I put too much salt in its food? Do they explode? Um, <laughs> what, and it dawns on me, you know, what if I am an utter failure? What if I mess up? What if I don't teach him in the way he should go? What if I don't protect him? What if I don't provide for him? What if I fail as a father and completely mess up his life? Man, the responsibility is like, whoa, overwhelming. And as I think about Mary and Joseph that night coming into Jerusalem, Mary potentially having been in labour as she walks there, and they don't have the luxury that we do. There's no hospital for them to go to. Uh, they turn up, they can't even find a room with a bed in it. And so they're stuck with a stable, straw on the floor, animals stinking all around them. Uh, and that is their lot. Maybe a midwife in town if they're lucky. Um, and 
But Jesus safely arrives on the scene, and there they are with this baby Jesus. And you know, around his conception had been all this crazy stuff happening, angelic visitations, dreams that Joseph had been having, um, visits with her cousin, lots of stuff that God had been doing, um, building up the excitement and the potential of what this baby was. And now he's here, the one who was to save humanity was here with them In a dirty stable, Jesus born into the most humble of settings. I wonder if it crossed their mind. Wow. You know, where's where's the the angelic host to take care of him? You know, who's going to be holding his head and wiping his bum and making sure we don't drop him? No, there was none of that. He had come as a human entrusted to them. This tiny, vulnerable little baby was theirs. I don't know what your view of uh, what Jesus was like as a baby. Was he this invincible thing? You know, could no harm ever come to him? Because that's not the picture that the Gospels uh, create of who Jesus is. Uh, One of the things that St. Paul says about him in Philippians, if you pop the next slide up for me, um, thank you, is this. He says, Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but he made himself nothing, taking on the very nature of a servant and being made in human likeness, being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. So who is this baby in a manger? Well, our our reading from John today says that this Jesus, in his very nature, is God. It says that through him all things were made, that there is nothing that has been made that has not been made through him. And if you skip on in the Bible to Hebrews, it says that this Jesus is an exact representation of God in heaven. There is nothing missing in him that you need to know about God. He is an exact representation. Everything is there. And it goes on to say that not only is he the one through whom all things were made, but he is the one who sustains everything. So you and I are here and breathing, and this world is existing because Jesus, who is God, is sustaining it. He is sustaining us. And yet, here he is as a baby It says that he's given all of that up. He surrendered it all, even to the point of not even desiring to be what he was and is. This this God become baby who has existed for eternity, has existed in perfect relationship with the Father and the Son and the Spirit, the three of them, they don't need you and I. They've never needed us, but he created us because he wanted us. And yet, being all-knowing and all-powerful and everywhere and just awesome in every way. And yet, he's laid all of that down. It says that he has become nothing. That's how it was. It was his choice. He made himself nothing. And he became one of us. Why? Why, why, why would God want to do that? Why would he want to do that? Surely if he wanted to show himself to us, why doesn't he just turn up kind of as he is? You know, 
bang, God in the sky in all his glory and power and majesty and might and declare to the world that I am the creator, I'm the one who made you and I want relationship with you, kind of do life my way. Why doesn't he just do that? Because surely the world would look at him and go, okay, there's no question, we all agree, we'll believe in you and we'll do life your way. Well, actually the answer is God did try that way once. You'll find the account in Exodus 19, if you fancy reading a bit of Old Testament at some point. And the context is that God had chosen this people, a people who did not know him. They had no relationship with him. They'd never heard his name. They don't know who he is. And he chose them and he rescued them from this horrendous, oppressive situation with remarkable acts of demonstrations of his power and his might. And he takes them out of Egypt and puts them in a new land. And on the way there, this God who has taken his time to rescue them says, I want to meet the people. I want to talk to them in person. So he says to Moses, his representative, he says, right, Moses, you go get everybody, tell them to get themselves ready, get washed, get cleaned, come back to the mountain, and I will come on the mountain and I will talk to the people. So that's what Moses does. The people go off, they have a bath, they trim their beards, they put their Sunday best on, and they turn up at the foot of the mountain. And God comes down. And it says he came down in a dense cloud, and the world around him started reacting. There's thunder, and there's lightning, and the people who are standing there, the ground starts shaking underneath their feet. And it says that there's the sound of trumpets in the air, but there's no humans blowing them. And they are terrified. And God speaks to them in person. He wants relationship with them. So he talks to this people that he's saved, declaring who he is and that Moses is his servant. And what do they say? What's their response? You're too scary. And they can't even say it to his face. They say to Moses, Moses, tell God not to talk to us again. We'd rather he talk to you and you talk to us. That's too scary. We don't want that again. They were so scared of him, they didn't want the relationship. They wanted relationship at a distance, and we all know that's no real relationship at all, is it? So this time, this time, God's done something different. He's come as this tiny little baby. He's got rid of all of that stuff that terrified us uh, about him. He's laid it all down the power, the might, the majesty, um, everything that terrified us about who he is so that we don't have to fear him anymore. And he's come in the form of this tiny little vulnerable baby, subjecting himself to humanity and a teenage parents who had never raised children before. This was God, but now he's become man. He's still God in every essence that is essential about who he is. We can look at him and find out everything we need to know about God, but he is fully human. He's going to do this life as a fully human being, a perfect one, unlike us, but that's how he's going to do this life. Why would God do that? Why would he make himself so vulnerable for us? Because he wants relationship. That's the message of the Bible, isn't it? That, that God is in pursuit of you and I. He wants relationship with us. 
if you want to know who God is, well, then look at Jesus. He is everything you need to know. If you want to know how God feels about the stuff going on in this world, then look at how Jesus deals with the stuff of this world. If you want to know how God feels about you and people, then look at how Jesus responds to people. He rejects no one. He accepts everyone. He serves everyone. He made himself less than us. That is something none of us desire to do, to be less than we are. But that's what he wanted to do, to serve us, even to the point of his very last breath. And when he had done that, when he had showed us who God was and what it was like to do life God's way, he demonstrated another remarkable act of vulnerability when he chose to submit himself to the false accusation, the shame and the humiliation of being beaten and whipped and punched and spat on and insulted and having his clothes ripped off him. And then he allowed them to nail him to a cross for a crime that he never committed. And at no point did he protest his innocence. At no point did he get angry with them. At no point did he lash out verbally. Did he try to trade blows for the ones they were giving him. He was fully surrendered to the greatest injustice the human race has ever seen when they punished God, made man, on a cross for something that he didn't do. And... He could have arranged to be safe from that. He could have called upon a legion of angels to rescue himself, but he didn't. He was totally committed to us, to this process of living life as a perfect human being and dying uh, in our place on the cross. Why on earth would God do that? Why would he give up all that he was to become one of us and do life like that? You see, when he came as a baby, he got rid of everything that scared us about him. So we no longer need to fear his majesty and his holiness and his perfection. We don't need to fear his anger and his wrath because Jesus has met every requirement required of us. Everything that we've ever done wrong, Jesus has paid the price for. He's done it all for us. Jesus has done it all. Why would God do this? Why would he put himself out there and make himself so vulnerable? And the answer is in our human nature. It's in how we relate to each other. You see, we have a culture uh, in our world of celebrating uh, that which is powerful and successful and strong and wealthy and intelligent, and s- but yet we have a culture of dismissing that which is, which is vulnerable, that which is weakness. We say that that is not acceptable, uh, it's shameful, it's embarrassing. But yet when I held my son that day, just a few minutes old, utterly vulnerable, totally weak, totally dependent, I didn't look at him and go, you despicable, pathetic little being. No, I was filled with more love than I knew I had capacity for. And I was filled with a desire to protect this vulnerable little child at any expense, including my life. You see, when we come into this world as babies, as Jesus did, 
the, the dependency, the vulnerability teaches us the first lesson we ever learn, that to connect to another human being requires us to be vulnerable and mutually dependent. And don't just take my word for it, because social scientists across the world are teaching the same thing. Uh, there's a lady who I love, her talks called uh, Bernay Brown. Um, you can pop the next slide up for us. She's uh, got a, t- a TED Talk, uh, fifth most popular TED Talk of, of all time, 44 million views on the power of vulnerability. It tells you a little bit of something about what our world is craving. And so uh, she, with her three PhDs and 10 years of research into the area of vulnerability and shame and human connection, uh, she says that you and I, are neurobiologically wired for connection. Your body and your mind is orientated towards this. You need this deep connection to know who you are, to have a sense of worth and value and what your life's purpose is. You need that. She found in all the people that she questioned that those who had the strongest sense of community and belonging and of self-worth and value and feeling loved and worthy those people didn't see vulnerability as shameful or embarrassing. It was actually something they saw in people as beautiful. It's something that they wanted because it is the doorway to intimacy. To be the first to say, I love you, to be the first to say, actually, I'm really struggling with this and I need you, I need your help. To be the one to invite somebody into relationship, and I'm not just talking about romantic stuff, but to say to someone, hey, actually, I really like you. Would you like to hang out this week at some point? Knowing that that offer, once put out there, can be utterly trampled on, and you can be hurt. That is the power behind human connection. That's where human connection begins to work, when we are vulnerable and honest with each other. See, we have a culture that says, I must be strong. I've got to be strong for my family, and I've got to be strong in relationships. But what if I said to you, actually, the strength of your family and the strength of your relationships comes in the power of vulnerability shared and doing life together, supporting each other. That is what makes us strong, and that is what God knew. That's why he came as this little baby. That's why he surrendered it all and gave it all up, put everything at risk for us, put his heart out there on the line and said, I want relationship with you to the extent that I'm going to give up everything. I'm going to risk everything. I'm going to declare to the universe that I love you and I want relationship with you. And I know full well that you can trample all over me. And we can. That's God's declaration. He wants relationship. He's removed every obstacle from his side, every barrier, every prerequisite for coming into a relationship with him, every standard that must be met has been met in Jesus. He's done it all and he's laid it out there for us to choose, for us to reject him or say yes. And we shouldn't think that just because he is God that when we reject him it doesn't hurt. Because actually, if you read the Old Testament, you'll hear God saying that actually when they reject me, I feel crushed. Same description we would say of being rejected by someone. Because that is our greatest fear, I think. That we're going to say to someone, I want relationship with you. And they're going to say, I don't like you, go away. That's our greatest fear. And yet God put himself out there. 
He made himself available for us to trample on him again and again and again, to walk past him, crushing him every time, rejecting him when we reject his advances. And he's willing to do that. But unlike you and I, we put up guards and defenses when that happens to us. We try to protect ourselves, and so therefore we don't do it the next time. We're more guarded with who we are. But he doesn't do that. He leaves himself vulnerable because he's always been vulnerable because all he wants is for us to come in relationship to him. That is his desire. And, and that's, that's just it. It's just relationship. That's all he's inviting us to. There's no contract to sign. There's nothing you've got to do in advance. You just have to go, okay, I want to explore this relationship. That's what it is all about. So my prayer for you guys this summer is that, um, that you remember this. Uh, summer? Is it? When is it? No, it's Christmas. It's winter. <gasps> Heaven's sakes. Um, <laughs> my prayer for you this Christmas, then, is that you remember this. When you see the manger scene, when you're reminded of Christmas, be reminded that a tiny baby came into the world and it was God giving up everything. God choosing to be vulnerable because he wants connection with you. And so my prayer for you also is that as you do Christmas this year, would you be the first to be vulnerable? Be the one to serve your family, to give to them. Get past the small talk and move on to the real stuff that actually strengthens relationships. That's the best thing that you can do for the people around you. Invite someone in who's on the outside because they need human connection. You up for that? Bless you.